the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This week's The Interview is brought to you by AndrewandTodd.com. AndrewandTodd.com are the world's best lenders for real estate. They are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. You can call them at 888 888-888-1172, 888-888-1172. And please do, no matter what your lending needs are, andrewandtodd.com. And now welcome to this new edition of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. The interview today is with Michael Punk. And Michael is a great novelist. I'm sure you read The Revenant. Maybe you saw the movie, but I hold in my hand the perfect Father's Day gift, Ridgeline, his brand new novel. It publishes now. You can order it in time for Father's Day on June 20th this year. Michael, welcome to The Hugh Hewitt Show, and thank you for joining me this morning. Well, thank you very much. I'm excited that you enjoyed the book. Oh, very much. Our, our mutual friend, Michael Duffy, uh, arranged for that. Exactly. You to send this to me. And I, you know, I, I don't normally read historical fiction. I'm more of a nonfiction or a thriller person. But Michael said, you'll love this. I sat down and I couldn't stop reading it. And so right there, home run. But then let me count the ways of things I didn't know anything about. Red Cloud. I knew a little bit about Crazy Horse, the 1866 campaign. I didn't know. Any, how did you know all this? I mean, did you decide first that you were going to write a novel about it and then learn, or had you learned and then decide to write a novel about it? Well, I grew up in Wyoming, and this story is a little bit better known in Wyoming, although even there it's not something that, that most people probably know about. But my uh, when I was in high school, I had a, a summer job working at Fort Laramie National Historic Site, dressing up in an 1876 cavalry uniform and talking to tourists about uh, the history of the American West. So I learned about some things that have always kind of been in the back of my mind, and I just thought this had such a great story and cast that it was perfect for a novel. Is it, is it fair to call the episode recounted in Ridgeline? And the trick with a novel is to give away a little bit, but not too much. The sure. opening act of The Custer's Last Stand, is this really when it begins? In a lot of ways, it is in terms of the, the kind of uh, – defining decade of the Indian Wars against the, the Lakota and the Cheyenne in particular. So, yeah, I think those two events very much connect, including geographically. They're only about 100 miles apart. Now, you also, you, you live in Montana now. You grew up in Wyoming, and I appreciated the back note where it said you were a uh, uh, an interpretive guide at Fort Laramie. How many years did you do that for? I did that for three summers in high school and college. That's like a perfect summer job. I mean, was it, it fun was at a, the time? <laughs> it was a blast. And uh, I think as a uh, growing up as a, as a boy in Wyoming, uh, you know, dressing up in a cavalry uniform, firing a cannon twice a day, uh, marching around with the, the period rifles, all of that was baking bread in a wood-burning oven. It was a great summer job. Did they pay you for that stuff? You know, I think uh, I ultimately started off, I started off as a volunteer and then, got paid later on. So I guess I worked my way into the uh, the paid gig. Well, what I appreciate a lot about Ridgeline is that you were able to authentically enter into the point of view of so many different people. Crazy Horse, obviously, the women of the fort, 
the soldiers in the fort, the variety of people in the fort, and this instant incident, Fetterman's battle, which people may or may not know of, has evidently got quite a historical record, but not nearly enough to know what happened. Would you explain to people the historical record they will find if they go look up Fetterman's battle, which I don't want them to do, but just so they get the fact that this sure. is not made up? Sure, it is absolutely not made up. It, uh, and it, as you mentioned, has this sprawling cast, very diverse cast, uh, that includes, uh, you know, the Lakota, the Cheyenne, the U.S. Army, the women who traveled uh, out west with their, their husbands who were officers, the laundresses. And so it's got this sprawling cast. But the historical record, the, the great thing about it is that the main kind of mileposts are there. We know that the cavalry and the infantry go over a ridgeline on a particular day. But there's a lot of mystery about the battle itself. And so it sort of made it perfect for historical fiction because there's a lot of things that we can speculate about, but we just don't know. And so those are the kind of the spaces that I tried to fill up with a novel. Well, I always have a favorite major character and a favorite minor character. The major character is Crazy Horse, and I want to talk to you about sure. him in a moment. But the minor character is your bugler, uh, uh, Adolf Metzger. And yeah, my yep. grandfather was the last man in America named Adolf. He was born in 1892. There just aren't any Adolfs left. <laughs> right. But I, I was unaware that the cavalry and the, uh, the army out west was made up of many immigrants, many of them not even literate. Well, most of them, in fact, were, uh, a lot, or at least a lot of them were immigrants at the time, in part because uh, for the German-Americans, it was a way for them to, to learn English. And so they would sign up for a, a two-year stint with the U.S. Army and learn English and kind of get paid to do it. There was a huge number of, of Irish-Americans that were members of the, of the U.S. Army in that, in that era. So it's, a, it's very much an immigrant army in the, in the 1860s and 70s. Now, is there any uh, prototype for the bugler, or is that one of your inventions? I know, I know, Crazy Horse, the real deal with Crazy Horse, but is, is bugler Metzger real or invented? Bu bugler Metzger is absolutely real. In fact, his uh, wow. bu bugle is in a museum in Buffalo, Wyoming. You can go see it. You see, I think that is really a remarkable bit of research. How long? Now, take me into the craft. Historical fiction, sure. if it's good, is great. If it's bad, it's terrible. Because you'll get bad ideas in your head, and they won't be true, and we'll never get them out. How did you research this to get it to the point where you are comfortable with people reading it and walking away with an account that they can rely on, not just on Jeopardy, but in conversation with friends? Sure. Well, there's kind of two parts of it. I mean, first of all, obviously, I read everything that could be read about this incident and the people involved. I spent a lot of time walking the battlefield itself to get it, my own feel for how things uh, might have happened. As I said, there's a lot of mystery, so you really do have to go there, and it's a wonderful, beautiful place in the Powder River Valley of, of uh, Wyoming. But then, you know, part of this for me really was uh, incredibly that, that high school job I had where for three summers I came about as close as you can come uh, in modern life to experiencing what it would have been like to live in that era as uh, as a soldier and dressing up in the same uniform that they wore, uh, eating the food that they ate, uh, firing the weapons that they fired. So all of those things kind of mixed together for me in a way that I hope makes the, the book feel real. Oh, it feels so real. I, in fact, I think that it may be the best novel of the West since Lonesome Dove, uh, and I, I wow. enjoyed it. In fact, you've got a Lonesome Dove character here. Uh, tell us about I the do. cowboy. 
Well, uh, Lonesome Dove has always been one of my favorites. And in fact, I was very uh, honored to have Larry McMurtry endorse the book before he died. But the the incident that Lonesome Dove is is based on, the real life incident, is a, is a about a cowboy named Nelson Story who drives a, a herd of cattle from Texas to, to Montana. He actually does that in real life in 1866, right in the middle of this war that is being fought that I write about. And so in real life, Nelson's story shows up uh, in the middle of this. And of course, that was catnip to me. Uh, I had to write about that and, and, and do as part of Ridgeline. Nelson's story comes across. I, I did not know he was the basis of Lonesome Dove, and I've read it twice and I've watched it once. I didn't know it was based on a real cowboy. So that is a yep. book within a book. Tell me a little bit about Native American point of view. When you were reenacting at Fort Laramie, had the awakening as to the Native American history in America begun? I mean, Little Big Man is of my youth, and it begins there with the yep. Native American movement. Where, where, where was it when you were at Fort Laramie? Uh, I would say that the U.S. government was not doing a very good job of interpreting Native American history at that time at all. And it's, it's one of the things that was striking to me even then is that the, the Native Americans were, were in many ways almost left out of the story. And when I wrote this book, I felt a huge sense of responsibility to try and tell that uh, aspect, the, the Native American aspect of the story, and, and tell it well. And did a lot of work, uh, uh, was lucky enough to have uh, a, a number of, of Native American readers who gave me a lot of feedback on what I had written. Uh, I, I made a lot of changes to the book on the basis of that feedback that I, that I hope improved it. But I, it, that was a responsibility I took very seriously. Now, when you get down to actual battle tactics of Crazy Horse and the Sioux especially, but also the Cheyenne and the Arapaho, do you know those for a fact to be how they fought, for example, on their horses with, uh, you know, grabbing a new repeating rifle and trying to figure it out? Is that all conjecture? Or is that documented? It's a mix. And, uh, you know, there, there, there is a decent amount written about the, that era and even that battle. But as I said, there there really is a lot that we that we don't know, and and so I did have to uh, speculate, which was as a as a fiction writer is 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 a lot of fun. But uh, again, I hope that I I did enough of my my homework that that even my speculation is is inside the bounds of what historians would would see and and say that that feels real. You know, I encourage young people who cannot get through Plutarch or Livy to read Colleen McCullough's The First Man in Rome, because it's it's a great way to access the history. Then you can go back and read the real history. And you do list a number of uh, serious historical works about the Native American battles with the American cavalry, which is the best. Um, the uh, that, that's a that's a tough question. Um, the. Uh, there's a there's a there's a book that we used to read at Fort Laramie uh, called Forty Miles a Day on Beans and Hay uh, that I think is one of the best books of, uh, kind of from the the, the soldiers uh, perspective. Um, there's a there's a biography of of Crazy Horse uh, by a, a Native American writer named named Marshall that I think is very good. Um, his last name is Marshall. Um, so those are two that I really like a lot. 40 miles on beans and hay. I remember that. Five miles a day on beans a day. Now, another question I wrote down. At the same time I was reading Ridgeline, I'm listening to The British Are Coming, which is a history of 1775, 1776, that former President Bush recommended me on the air. 
And it's remarkable the amount that Native American tribes in both Canada and the United States had to play in the Revolutionary War. Have you studied only the Western tribes, or have you also studied the tribes of the Midwest and the Eastern Seaboard? I haven't studied uh, the Eastern tribes a little bit, but not nearly as much. I've always really been focused on on Western American history. And so, you know, for me, uh, a lot of my research kind of begins with Lewis and Clark going west and the encounters they had with, with the tribes as they went west. The Revenant, of course, was written about the fur trade era and specifically set in the 1820s. So my history is much better on the Western tribes. You know, I love your I love your scouts here, the old fur traders who get old. And then when yeah. I discover they're not made up, I, I had I just thought they were fictional. They're too perfect. Right. They're just too perfect. Well, that's the thing, again, as a as a writer, when I discovered that that Jim Bridger, the king of the mountain men and and James Beckworth, this uh, uh, famous mixed race uh, 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 mountain man were together in this, in the middle of this story in real life, it was it was again it was catnip as a writer. I, I gotta wonder, did you not have an awakening that, oh my gosh, this is a gold field? I'm the first one here. There, you know, that's playing off of one of the backstories in Ridgeline's the Montana Gold Rush. But my gosh, I'm the first person to do a historical novel on this sequence of events. Well, there there are other things that have been written over the over the years, but um, I did feel that there was a, a telling there that that maybe I was in a good position to write, uh, including you know given my background growing up in Wyoming and and having uh, experienced a, a bit of 1870s life. So I, I was very excited that there was this uh, this opportunity there to to hopefully bring the story to a to a wider audience. Has Ridgeline been optioned for the movies? It has been. It was uh, it, it was optioned about six months ago by the same company called Anonymous Content that, that did the, the Revenant. So I'm very hopeful on that front. Did you help on the screenplay for the Revenant? I did uh, did only in small ways. I was working for the U.S. government at the time, so I was not able to, to have uh, a side hustle. But I did, before I went to work for the U.S. government, uh, consult on various versions of the of the screenplay. Now, that is some one of the most— Some advice was taken and some was not. <laughs> the Revenant, a number one New York Times bestseller, and I think Ridgeline will be as well, because it is— Did you time it for Father Day, Michael? You know, uh, we my publisher was very much aware that, that Father's Day was out there, and I think they, they like you, hope that it will be uh, something that people think of as a, as a good gift for Father's Day. I've gotten, like so many, yeah, I, I've gotten so many bad Father's Day gifts over the years that I'm just telling people, if you're thinking about it, this will work. Now, what, what I found curious, I knew about The Revenant, of course. I hadn't read it, but I'd seen the movie and loved it. But I didn't know that you were the U.S. ambassador to the WTO for eight years. And that makes you a Democrat, which is fine by me. I don't care what people's party are when it comes to historical fiction. But that is kind of a career jump, isn't it, to go from, from being the— um, the WTO ambassador and having the Revenant on one end and Ridgeline on the other? Well, I, I, I have kind of an eclectic uh, career background, I guess. Yeah, and and honestly, I've always, I've always had a, a couple of deep passions. One of them has been for Western history and, and one of them has been for, uh, for international affairs and international politics. And so in my mind, they all kind of fit together, but I can understand why it's not necessarily a, a straight line. 
How did President Obama come to find you to send you to Geneva? <laughs> um, well, I, as a as a uh, a young person, I I had had worked in an earlier administration, and so I I knew some of the people that that were going into that administration who were who were working on uh, on trade issues, actually. Now wait, that's got to be Clinton. That's Mickey, right? And Dan Potter and people. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a bunch. Is my, I know all these bad yeah. Democrats who hang okay. around and they get away. So, <laughs> so how did you hook up with Mickey and all the, the USTR people? So I uh, had worked on Capitol Hill for Senator Baucus from Montana. And while working for Senator Baucus, uh, then had the opportunity to go into the to to Mickey Cantor's uh, office of the U.S. Trade Representative, and he, you know, became a, a mentor to me and has been uh, my whole career. So Mickey's uh, Mickey's one of my favorite people. He's a great lawyer and a fine American. But now you have to talk to our audience about how you managed to turn out not just the Revenant but Ridgeline while pursuing politics in Montana of all places. <laughs> Well, the answer is on lots of airplane rides. Uh, I, I love to write, which makes it easier to to find time to do it. But but I do a lot of writing uh, early in the morning, a lot of writing on airplanes. I've written this in a lot of hotel, uh, bad hotel lounges. And so uh, definitely had to learn to, to, uh, to write with other things going on in the background. Now, Michael Punk, I, I see your son is in the business, uh, like my son is in the business, because he, he followed me on Twitter when I started to tweet about your book. Uh, and I assume he's gone the, 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 the way of all bad things, and he's a Democrat as well. Montana is now deep red. Are you still comfortable up there? Uh, I, I am very much comfortable in Montana. It's Montana's a, a pretty eclectic state politically, uh, including a, a whole bunch of, of independents. So... There's a there's a lot of, uh, of of tolerance for different political perspectives in in Montana. I just had Governor Jan Forte on last week, and I have fished the Madison and Ennis a couple of times with my buddy Jan Genera. Oh, which, which, well, not very well. The fish have nothing to be afraid of, and the guides do. What uh, which part of the state are you in? So I'm in Missoula. Okay. And uh, and uh, but I've, I've fished the whole state. And uh, including including the Madison. But, uh, no, there's uh, my favorite places to fish in Montana are mostly kind of smaller creeks. And for big rivers, I probably love the Yellowstone the best. All right. Now, I want to go back to a couple of historical details. And again, talking about a book without giving away anything is important. How many logisticians ended up in command in the West? Because there is this theme that he was a great quartermaster kind of the, the yep. commanding officer here. But then they put him in command of warriors, and it doesn't work well. How often did that occur in the West? You know, it's it's interesting because I I I don't think it happened that often. In in part because there were so there was such an abundance of of really uh, battle hardened uh, veteran officers after the after the Civil War. And it's it's very strange that the, the officer that you're talking about, Colonel Carrington, who was the commanding officer of this group in the book, uh, I think they picked him because they really uh, foolishly thought that they weren't going to have to fight. They and they and what they what his main task was was to go build a fort, and he was actually very good at building a fort. He would have been a, a very good mayor. He just was not a good uh, combat leader, and so they they. They signed a treaty, although they didn't even sign it with the, the tribes that, that lived in the land that was in question. 
And so they thought because of signing this treaty that they would uh, enforce peace and that he would go out and build a fort. And then later on, they would kind of uh, uh, send the, the kind of soldiers they needed at that fort to, to handle a more military environment. But he was he was he was picked for the wrong job uh, as opposed to the job that he that he was ended up having to do. What was amazing about the end of this is, uh, as I read your afternote about the two Mrs. Carringtons, and I won't say any yeah. more about it, and their and their effort to salvage their husband's history. It's not unlike yep. Alexander Hamilton's wife, the daughter of uh, of Senator and General Schuyler, who waged, I think, a fifty year campaign to get Hamilton his due. It sounds like the Carrington wives were just as as relentless in telling their side of the story. They were quite relentless, and Carrington spends uh, the rest of his career after this incident kind of trying to blame other people for, for what happened. And he kind of somewhat shamelessly enlists his uh, two, ultimately two wives in this endeavor. And he was quite successful for a long time, actually. I think uh, the, the sort of Carrington version of, of history, which I don't think is accurate, is the one that prevailed for you know more than 100 years until a couple of I think uh, more recent uh, historians did, did some more digging. Well, let me conclude by talking to you about Red Cloud and about Crazy Horse. I think Americans yeah. have generally the wrong, I did, the wrong idea of Crazy Horse, that he was abandoned. He's not. He's not Geronimo. He's a completely different character. How would you characterize his, his standing in the pantheon of American Native American heroes? Well, he's... he's been a huge hero of mine since I was a boy growing up in, in Wyoming. And I think one of the interesting, uh, he's, there's an aura of mystery about Crazy Horse. He was, he, for example, he never allowed himself to be photographed. So we don't even know for sure kind of what he looked like. But I think one telling thing about Crazy Horse is his, his, uh, his, his father uh, was a spiritual leader and his uncle was a, uh, a warrior. And he really was dramatically influenced by both. And I think that combination of kind of spiritual leader and warrior is one of the things that makes him so interesting as a, as a human being and as a leader. Now, you're talking about Worm and High Backbone, and these names right. are, I assume, the authentic names from the record. Yes, they are. There, there isn't yeah. much about mothers in this, in this culture and in this book, and there's a little bit, well, but not a lot. How much, yeah. how much role do the mothers of the Native American big uh, historical figures play? Do you know as much about them as you would, for example, about Worm and, and High Backbone? There's less historical record, although certainly the, the, the mothers in, in Native American culture played uh, enormous roles. Crazy Horse's uh, mother died when he was young, and he was raised uh, in significant part by, by, uh, uh, by when his father remarried. They, they don't, I don't think they refer to them as stepmothers, but essentially by his stepmother. So he had two very influential uh, mothers in his life. Now, the other one I want to talk about, and by the way, how do people end up with names in this in these three tribes' cultures? I'm sure they're different everywhere, but in the Lakota, in the Sioux, in the Cheyenne, in the Arapa, how do people end up with names? You say at one point, I think I'm getting this right, Michael, that Worm gives Crazy Horse his own name. Am I, do, am I recalling that correctly? 
That's right. After after Crazy Horse went out for his uh, kind of boyhood vision, uh, he comes back and relates his his vision to his his father. His father uh, had originally been named Crazy Horse, and his father gives uh, uh, Crazy Horse the character in my book the name his own name, and then as as a sign of humility, takes the name of Worm. And uh, as obviously a, a, a symbol of of a, of a humble creature, and actually that humility is another thing that that I think is very characteristic of Crazy Horse's life, and one of the things that makes him very compelling to me as a as a character. What makes the most compelling character to me is Red Cloud. Now I will freely admit I didn't know anything about Red Cloud until I read Ridgeline. Zero zip nada. And so I am impressed at his diplomatic skills. Now, they obviously do not hold together, but that is, is that unprecedented what he pulled off? In, in, the, in, in the Western tribes, it was, uh, it was unprecedented. And in fact, I think it's, it's one of the reasons why he, Red Cloud wins this war. Uh, and it's, we don't think of, of Native Americans as winning wars, and they, they win this war. And as you say, we all know that later on it, it doesn't hold together. But for a period of years, they win back territory that had been uh, seized by the U.S. Army. And as you say, a big part of that is because of the brilliance of Red Cloud's leadership. And he, he does something diplomatically, both diplomatically, both diplomatically and militarily. Diplomatically, he creates this coalition of tribes, uh, uh, some of whom had had uh, not been uh, particularly friendly to each other in the past. And then militarily, he, he creates uh, a battle plan and a and a trap that was out that was without precedent. Who is your cartographer for the front piece? By the way, it's very well done. Oh, for the uh, for the uh, for the map or for the drawing? The map. The, um, I don't remember the name of the cartographer, unfortunately. It's it's written down in there someplace, but uh, it was the publisher helped pull that together. So, but yeah, it's, it's a very good. It's it's very well done. It, it's really superb. I can't I can't say this enough. Now I have to ask the obligatory author question. What's next? Well, I'm not married to any one story yet, but the the um, what I'm always kind of looking for is. Uh, you know, look, I love the history of the American West and especially the, the 19th century American West. So I'm always kind of poking around in that in that world. I want a combination of a really exciting adventure story, which I think is kind of at the core of, of you know, Ridgeline, just as it was at the core of, of The Revenant. And in my perfect world, it's a story that I think has contemporary relevance and lessons, as I think this one does about, I mean, for example, there's a lot in this book about, you know, the the, uh, the leaders we follow and the con- consequences of bad leadership and, and and the responsibility of people who are around uh, leaders. So th- there's contemporary themes that, that to me, uh, come through, not in a, in a uh, beat you over the head kind of way, but they just kind of, they jump out of the story. And I'm, so I don't know yet, it's a short answer, but I'm, I'm always looking. Well, I will continue. If you search your mind, you come up. I think there's a hole in the great American bookshelf uh, that you would see battle cry of freedom and maybe team of rivals in. And there are certainly uh, revolutionary war epics, both Hamilton, even now Grant gets his due uh, in this majestic biography. But there isn't really a story of the uh, 
settlers and the Native Americans that is sweeping and comprehensive. I, I just don't know of one that leaps off at the page that isn't political, but is in fact just uh, historical, just a narrative. And yeah. if you come up with one, let me know what the name is, and I'll, I'll broadcast that to the audience. But in the meantime, Michael Punk, and it's spelled P-U-N-K-E, terrific work. Congratulations. I hope you're number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and I hope you'll come back and call me when you come to town. I'll buy you lunch. That sounds great. Thanks so much for your interest. I really appreciate it. And my pleasure, and thank you for Ridgeline. Thank you, America. Stay tuned for the next interview with Hugh Hewitt. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.